during the holidays just gone, some friends of ours very kindly offered to let us stay in their house down the south coast. Uh, We were pretty keen for a holiday. And so Jenny and I loaded up the kids into the Tarago. And when I say loaded up, I mean loaded up the Tarago. Yeah, that's right. There are seven bikes on that mighty Tarago right there, one for each of us. We loaded up the Tarago, we headed down the coast, and we had a wonderfully refreshing time together, enjoying God's creation. And time and time again while we were there, I'd be looking around at the amazing beauty of God's creation, of the, of the sky, of the beach, of, of the bush, of the coastline. And I don't know if you've had that experience where you just sort of sit there and you're taking it all in and just thinking sometimes, there, there must be something, someone behind all this. It can't just have happened by a freak chance. Have you ever had that feeling? Have you ever been struck by the wonder, the beauty of the natural world? Maybe it was a sunset, a sunrise, that moment when you've seen that huge expanse of stars on a cloudless night and you got out of the city. Or when you've held maybe a, a newborn baby born into your extended family in your arms. Or when you've spent some time just soaking up the serenity of a secluded stream in the bush. It's actually a very common experience. In all seriousness, if you can't remember moments like that where you've just had that sense, then frankly you should swap Facebook and YouTube and the internet porn sites that you're filling your mind with and just go outside for a little while. It is such a common experience that there must be something or someone behind all this that actually has a particular name. It's called a numinous moment. Numinous It's when we get a sense of a divine presence that God, whoever or whatever God might be, that somehow God has left a mark here. Have you had those numinous moments? Of course, it's not just when we're surrounded by the wonder and beauty of the natural world that we ask those sort of God questions. Sitting in a first-year philosophy tutor, the tutor is tearing apart the various arguments put forward throughout history for the existence of God. And it makes you ask the question, well, is it really rational to believe in God? Is, if there is a God or gods, how would I know what he, she, it or they are like? You get dumped by your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Your parents split up. You fail some subjects at uni. You despair over, over world poverty. A friend gets paralyzed in a car accident. Something terrible happens and and you start asking, what the heck is God doing if he's there? What are you actually like, God, if this is what's happening to me and to the world around you? God, where are you? Who are you? What are you doing? These are not just intellectual questions. They're real questions. Real questions asked all the time by real people, like by you and me. And we're here this week to get some answers. What is God like? So talking about God. 
Talking about God is actually quite a difficult thing to do. I'm on page 7 of the booklet, if you haven't worked that out. It's a difficult topic because of who God is, but also because of who we are. Now, I mean, it's stating the obvious, but God is invisible. So you can't regularly just see, taste, smell or touch the divine. You can't do scientific experiments on God. What's more, God is transcendent, meaning that is God is totally unlike anything else in the created realm. He, he supersedes time and space. But talking about God is actually also complicated because of who we are. We're limited by our own concepts, by our own understanding of something that is actually totally unlike anything else. Even by the limitations of our own language to express what is, at least in part, well beyond our expression. How do we do that? So talking about God is difficult, but it's also hotly debated. Uh, the briefest look around the world shows there are, as the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, there are many gods and many lords. You can see there on your page, uh, in 2010, um, approximately 5.9 billion people around the world ascribed to some sort of religious belief. So 80% of the global population holds some sort of religious faith. They believe something about a God or, or divine. Uh, but that sort of belief is separated into lots and lots of sort of particular religions. 19 major world religions divided into 270 large religious groups and thousands of smaller faiths. So lots of people today still believe in some sort of God or gods or, or some sort of higher spiritual power, but which out of all those is the right one? Which one is really real? Now, interestingly, even amongst uni-age people living in Sydney, it's fine. It's a black screen. Uh, even amongst uh, uni-age people living in Sydney, you might be surprised to know that actually two-thirds of your age group in Sydney ascribe to some sort of religious faith. Two out of three. Now, you can see there at the bottom of page seven some of the stats I pulled out of the 2011 Australian Census. And I've given you a little grid there of 100 circles so you can draw your own breakdown of your own age group living in Sydney, Okay. Um, so 9% of the people who filled out the survey in your age group left the question blank. That's okay, it was optional, right? But guess how many identified as Christian? The answer is 52%. 52% of your own age group, 18 to 24 hours, living in Sydney, identified as Christian. Does that mean they, they really are followers of Jesus? Are they actually seeking to live with Jesus as Lord of their life? Do they even really know what Jesus was on about? Probably not. But it does say that at least half of all the people your age living in Sydney are in theory open to talking about Jesus as the person who is at the centre of the Christian faith, which they at some level have identified with. There's a lot more op opportunity actually, I think, there for talking to people about Jesus than maybe we often think there is. Uh, you can also see there how some of the other faiths are represented amongst your age group. There on your page are 6% are Muslim. So you can group another six circles together. 5% are Buddhist. Who, strictly speaking, Buddhists don't actually believe in any God at all. 
Um, but it is a spiritual religious belief system, so it gets included in this category. Uh, 3% Hindu, 3% other, which includes uh, 1% that are Jewish. And the number of people uh, your age ascribing to those faith, interestingly, is uh, larger in Sydney than in other parts of Australia, which I think is sort of interesting. Probably because Australia, uh, Sydney is much more multicultural than most of the rest of Australia. So if you've done it right, then you should have 22 circles left over. And those 22 circles represent everyone from your age group in Sydney who ticked no religion in the census. So that then takes us, I guess, uh, from looking at all the sort of the different sort of religious belief in Sydney all the way to the other end of the spectrum. Not only is there debate amongst the religious about which God is the real God... There's also a growing cohort, especially in Western societies, who are saying, like the fool says actually in Psalm 14, there is no God. If you listen to Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens and others in the New Atheist Movement, you'd assume actually that in the God debate, atheism, you know, the atheism, that that there is no Godism, you would assume, listening to them, that atheism is in the rapid ascendancy. But actually, the reality is quite a bit more complicated. Have a look at the quotation on the top of page 8. Some of the people who've crunched some of the global numbers on atheism uh, conclude this. Projections to 2020 indicate a sustained decrease of the global share of the non-religious. This is due primarily to the resurgence of Buddhism, Christianity and other religions in China and Christianity in Eastern Europe. If this trend continues, agnostics and atheists will be a smaller proportion, sorry, smaller portion of the world's population in 2020 than they were in 2010. Although the number of atheists and agnostics continues to rise in the Western world, the current growth of a variety of religions in China in particular where the vast majority of the non-religious live today, suggests continued future demographic growth of religion. From the point of view of the 1970 to 2010, there has been a global religious resurgence, and it seems likely to continue into the future. But we do need to note here that this whole question of God then is a much debated topic, especially in a society and city like ours. Sydney is increasingly multicultural, which means multi-religious, as well as increasingly secular. So we need to be gentle with each other as we talk about the topic of God this week. It's fantastic that there are lots of people here who are not yet Christians. So may I just say, don't be stupid and slag off about other people who have a different view to you because the chances are you'll be offending somebody who's sitting at the same table or sleeping in the same room as you. That's actually no way to have a conversation about God. Let's make sure our conversations are full of both truth and grace and never do just one without the other. So talking about God has its challenges and it's much debated, but it's also, as you can see there, a very significant topic. In particular, what you believe about God or or gods has a profound impact on every other part of your life. You can see there under point C uh, what Broughton Knox wrote about this. He said, everyone has a doctrine of God, that is, of ultimate reality, which will influence every aspect of life the emotions, 
the decisions of the will, the hopes of the future and day-to-day behaviour. If the thinker is consistent so that his actions correspond with his thoughts, then his doctrine of God will control his behaviour completely. But most of us are inconsistent. And this does not add to our happiness or enhance our effectiveness. So as Matt said before, what we're talking about this week does have the potential to completely change the way you view life. More, actually, the way you live your life. This week is about getting in touch with ultimate reality, as Knox put it there. It's about knowing God, the real God. And when you truly know the real God, that shapes everything. It's wonderfully freeing and gives life in profound ways. Which is why talking about God is also a vital topic. According to the Christian Bible, this is the most important topic you could stop to think about. And I'm not putting too fine a point on it, because in the Bible's perspective, the question about God is actually a question about life and death. You can see there on your page, under point D, how the Bible puts it in 1 John 5. The Apostle John writes, he says there, and this is the testimony. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son, that is in his Son, Jesus Christ. Whoever has the Son, Jesus, has life. Whoever does not have the Son, the Son of God, does not have life. God's given us this gift, this gift of eternal life, but that life is only found in Jesus, the Son of God. So if you don't have that Jesus, you don't have this sort of life. So the question of God and how Jesus fits into this picture of God is absolutely vital for each of us here, but but actually for everybody. There is no more vital topic to talk about. But even beyond being significant and vital, talking about God and getting to know God is actually just the greatest topic there is. You can see there on your page how Jim Packer put it. He said, knowing God, is there any greater theme to study? Is there any nobler goal to aim at? Is there any greater good to enjoy? Is there any deeper longing in the human heart than the desire to know God? Surely not. And Christianity's good news is that it can happen. That is why the Christian message is a word for the world. To know God is the biggest and best of the blessings promised in the gospel. Such is the glorious reality of knowing God. For this we were made. For this we've been redeemed. This is the true object of the world's longing and the sum and substance of the Christian's ambition and hope. It's our highest dignity, our proper purpose and our final fulfillment to know God. There is, I repeat, no more vital subject than any of us can ever explore than knowing God according to the scriptures. So we're in for a great time this week as we do just that. But the question, I guess, as we start then is, where should we start? Where exactly do we start? If you turn over the page to page 9, knowing God, where should we start? Now, we have some options and problems here. Some options and some problems. If we were on the Sydney Uni campus this morning, rather than here at beautiful Maroo, 
and you're at Sydney Uni and you want to know God, my question is, where would you go on the campus to find God? Which geographical spot would you head towards if you wanted to know God? Well, maybe we would start here. Cadigal Green. I know most of you don't have any idea where that even is. Because you've never crossed over. You didn't even know there was a Darlington side of the campus. What? But if you head down on the way to Redfern or down through... There's Cadigal Lawns. See, when I, where did I start the talk this morning? Sit out, you know, in creation, in the world that God has made. So maybe we should go to Cadigal Lawns, sit outside, soak up the grass, the trees, the, the, the sky, and, and look for an experience of the numinous. I'm sure that's what the engineers are doing at the end of one of their lunchtime beer-a-thons. Crashed out on Gadigal lawns looking for an experience of the numinous. The problem with starting with experience, though, is actually it's very subjective, isn't it? The experience may be real enough, but who's to say where that experience came from? Maybe it was a genuine numinous moment, but maybe it was all just in your head. Experience just doesn't present much of a firm basis for any definitive knowledge of God. So maybe experience isn't doing it so well. Maybe we could head to the quad and take a seat in the philosophy lecture room. And we'll look at the philosophical arguments for the existence of a divine being and consider philosophically what sort of attributes said divine being ought to have. But interestingly, almost nobody actually believes in that philosophical God. The philosophers have left us with a sterile, impersonable, unknowable concept of the divine. It tells us nothing of what God is actually like, his character and what he's doing in the world. It just doesn't get you very far. Well, maybe we'll leave the quad, we'll head down to this beautiful building. You know what building that is? Anyone recognize it? Picture's not great. It's the Woolly Building. We head to the Woolly Building. Uh, Why? Uh, Not because it houses the aeronautical engineering wind tunnel, which is true, but bizarre. We head to the Woolly Building because that's where the Religious Studies Department is located. So we go down there, we log on to their database, and we say, what we're going to do is we're going to pump through all the different religions of the world mash them all together and come up with some generally general statements about God that are common to all of them. Surely that will get us to truth about God. But see, the problem with that is that all the views about God are so diverse and so often at odds with one another that whatever beliefs you end up coming up with are, are usually thoroughly anemic, they're hopelessly generalized and describe a God believed in by no one in particular. It just doesn't get you very far. So Woolly Building hasn't helped us, so finally we decided, look, let's head back to Eastern Avenue. We could try the law faculty. That's probably not much use. <laughs> um, of course, present, present law students accepted, half of that faculty seem to think that they're actually God's gift to the rest of us. <laughs> and the other half actually believe they are God. <laughs> so we decide the law faculty is not much use. We keep going and we come to Carr's Law, beautiful Carr's Law, and all the scientists who hover around its lovely precinct. Is that the place to find God? 
Well, the problem there is that God doesn't have to submit to our scientific investigations. You can't examine him with your instruments. You can't enlist God as a lab rat and run experiments on him because God is the one who made the very stuff with which you're trying to examine him. He transcends us. None of these are really satisfactory as a starting point for a comprehensive, definitive knowledge of God. Not philosophy, not experience, not the theory of religions, not science. The place to start at Sydney Uni, if you want to really know God, is this. It's a T-shirt. The place to start if you want to know God at Sydney Uni is a T-shirt, the EU's T-shirt, which proclaims on the back three key words. Jesus is Lord. From a Christian perspective, that is the right starting point for understanding who God is because that message that Jesus is Lord is the heart of the Christian gospel. So we start with the gospel. Now, a gospel just means grand public announcement, right? When we talk about the Christian gospel, we mean God's grand good news announcement to the world. And the heart of God's good news announcement is the truth that's on the back of that T-shirt, which is why you put it there in the first place. Have a look halfway down page 9 at how Peter in Acts chapter 2 summarizes what God has done. He says there, this Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Messiah, or Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. There's the grand announcement, right? Right there, God's gospel to the world. God has made this Jesus who once was dead but is now alive. God has made this Jesus Lord and Christ or Messiah. Well, Jesus is Lord might be there at the heart of the Christian gospel, but what does it mean? And what does it have to do with knowing who God is? Well, to work that out, we've got to dig a little bit deeper into what it means to call Jesus Lord. Just there, under point B on page 9, you can see I've listed three different uses for the word Lord in the New Testament. Um, It's sometimes used as a common honorific, you know, just a polite form of address, like you might have called your teacher at school, Sir. It's sometimes just used as a polite form of address. And there's an example there in Luke chapter 7, verse 6. Sometimes it's used as a political title, Uh, In the first century, Caesar was called Lord. And I think there's an interesting reflection of that in Acts 17, uh, verses 5 to 7, where the Christians are actually being accused of proclaiming another king before the Roman authorities. Presumably that's actually because the Christians kept proclaiming to everybody, Jesus is Lord. But that was heard in the Roman Empire as politically subversive because everyone knows Caesar is Lord. So it had a political title to it. But the third way Lord was used in the New Testament, and this is important for us today, was as a substitute for God's name. 
Now, I want to lead you carefully through this because you might not have always realized this. You can see there on the left-hand side an excerpt from the Old Testament from Joel chapter 2, verses 21 to 32. Uh, 31 to 32. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of Yahweh comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. Those four letters, Y-H-W-H, which I'm pronouncing as Yahweh, they are the name by which the living God revealed himself in the Old Testament to the Israelites. Right? That was his name. But out of respect for God and his name, whenever the Jews read their Hebrew Old Testament scriptures and they came across his name, Yahweh, they didn't say Yahweh. They made a verbal substitution. They saw Yahweh, but they said the Hebrew word for Lord, just out of respect, to not say his name. They did a verbal substitution. And so you get this situation then when the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament, they use the word for Lord whenever God's name was there in the Old Testament text. So you can see an example there on the right-hand side of your page from Acts chapter 2, where Peter quotes that Old Testament passage from Joel 2. And notice the substitution he makes. He says, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what's the upshot of all of that? When you read the word Lord in the New Testament, it could mean one of three different things. It could be just a polite term of address. It could be a political title. Or it could be a substitute for the name of the living God. And only context will help you work out which one it is. So then if you turn over to page 10, what then does the New Testament mean when it says Jesus is Lord? What's it saying about Jesus? And now the shocking answer, and it really is shocking, is that when the New Testament writers call Jesus Lord, they are deliberately meaning God's name. They are including Jesus into the identity of their God, Yahweh. Now let's take a moment to get this. It's a massive point. One of the abs- You've got to go know that one of the absolute bedrocks, the non-negotiable truth in Judaism was that God is one. Judaism was a one God only faith. It was monotheistic. It wasn't just saying we worship one God instead of many. It was actually saying something stronger. We believe there is only one God and his name is Yahweh. That's what they believed. And this was an incontrovertible uh, pillar of the Jewish faith. If you're an Israelite, every morning and every evening, you would recite the Shema, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, which is there on the left-hand side of your page. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You would say it every morning and every night of your life. One God, his name is Yahweh. Couldn't be clearer. But then what the heck is Paul, the apostle, who was a good Jew, saying on the right-hand side of your page in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 to 6? He says there, Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists 
and there is no God but one. That is, Paul here is agreeing, right, with the standard Jewish belief, one God. And he goes on, verse 5, even the, Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, by which he means Christians, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now, remember, right, Paul the Apostle was a Jew long before he became a Christian. He was a Pharisee, a devoted, orthodox, pious, passionate Jew. He was absolutely committed to monotheism. And Paul didn't abandon that monotheism when he became a Christian. He understood, actually, the Christian faith to be the fulfillment, the intended end point of Judaism. It wasn't its negation, it was its fulfillment. So what he's done here in 1 Corinthians 8 is not to start to proclaim two gods. He's, rather, he's inserted the man Jesus into the most well-known statement of Old Testament monotheism. He's inserted Jesus into the Shema. So instead of just saying, one God, the Lord, Paul says, there's one God, the Father and one Lord, Jesus Christ. This is the astonishing inclusion at the heart of the Christian gospel, that the man Jesus is included into the identity of who God is. You can see how Richard Balcom puts it there on your page. Paul is not adding to the one God of the Shema, a Lord the Shema does not mention. He's identifying Jesus as the Lord whom the Shema affirms to be one. Christianity doesn't believe in two gods. No more than Judaism does. We believe in only one God. But equally, what Paul is doing is identifying Jesus with the Lord of the Shema in such a way that Jesus is divine, but he's not God the Father. Now, somehow, in a way that ultimately comes to clearest expression in the Christian understanding of God as Trinity, which we're going to look at tonight, somehow there is room in the single identity of the one God for the man Jesus, but in a way that distinguishes him from God the Father and also, as we'll see tonight, from God the Spirit. But there are not three gods, there's one God. Now, this is not a one-off. Just here in 1 Corinthians, you can find similar inclusions of Jesus into verses about Yahweh if you compare, say, Isaiah 45 and Philippians chapter 2. Okay, so that brings us just to the conclusion in part C on page 10, which I guess is the key point of this whole first talk. The gospel that Jesus is Lord, do you see that when we now say Jesus is Lord, we're actually saying something about who God is. We're identifying who God is. We're saying Jesus is Lord. See, when I ask people what the Christian gospel is, the answers I usually get are things like, oh, it's about forgiveness of sins or going to heaven when you die or or maybe for those who've been around for a while in Christian things, they say, oh, it's about becoming a child of God. Now, forgiveness, resurrection, adoption, they are wonderful blessings of the Christian gospel. But none of them, I think, are actually at the heart 
of the Christian gospel. At its very heart, when we say Jesus is Lord, we're not saying first something about forgiveness or resurrection or adoption, are we? We're saying something about who God is, who is, who is the Lord. And so first and foremost, the Christian gospel is a grand announcement to the world about the identity of God. When we announce this gospel, it's as though we're pulling, pulling back the curtain at a grand opening. You know, you go to those openings and put the big, big curtain up and the dignitary sort of pulls the cord, the curtains are revealing. Behold, here it is, right? Well, when we announce the Christian gospel, Jesus is Lord. We're pulling back the curtain and saying, here is God, the living God. The gospel that Jesus is Lord is the answer to the question, who is God? But do notice the Christian gospel is a, is a very specific answer to that question, isn't it? It's that Jesus is Lord, not anyone or anything else. If you want to know who the one true God is, what he's truly like, then Jesus is the place to go because the Christian gospel announces that Jesus is Lord. So if you're here this week just checking out the Christian faith and you've not yet made your mind up about God, go to Cat and Josh's group in conference room three, right? Because you've got to get your head around Jesus. That's who you'll find out who God is. Now, third little reflection just at this point, this gospel, notice it's not our invention. It's not our answer to the question, who is God? This gospel that Jesus is Lord is God's statement to the world about who he is. Why do we choose to start with the gospel as our starting point, not experience or philosophy or science? It's because the grand announcement that Jesus is Lord is God's announcement to us about who he is. We should let God speak for himself. Listen to his announcement. Jesus is Lord. If you want to let God speak for himself, then you have to start with the gospel. Well, and that brings us over the page to the final part of this talk. Part C, the God who speaks. We can get to know God by starting with the gospel because God is a God who speaks, who reveals himself. Uh, there are two ways that God speaks and reveals himself that the Bible describes. Uh, first of all, God speaks through his creation. He speaks he reveals himself through what he's made. You can see there, page 11, Psalm 19, verses 1 to 4. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. There are, they use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth their words to the ends of the world. You do get a sense of God's handiwork from the creation around us. There is a numinous quality to God's creation. And day after day, night after night, something of God's glory, something of his magnificence is apparent from what he has made. So when you're up at the prayer tower, not doing much praying, and the stars are out on a cloudless night, Try to be distracted momentarily from the beauty at your side <laughs> to the beauty that God has revealed. 
listen to his voice. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul goes on then to identify what it is that we can know about God from the creation. Romans 1 verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them ever since the creation of the world. His eternal power and divine nature, even uh, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So when you sit back and look at the beauty and wonder of the world around us, what is clear is that there must be something behind all this, something or someone that has made all this and put it together. And secondly, whoever or whatever has made it all must be incredibly powerful. What you see in creation is the creator's divine nature, there's something more, and his eternal power. He or she or it must be incredibly powerful. But then Paul notes what this means for us, picking it up again towards the end of verse 20. So they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give him thanks. So because God has revealed himself in this way to everyone, we are all without excuse. God can rightly hold every single human being accountable for how we've responded, even just to the reality of his divine nature and eternal power. So if that was all we had, just the creation around us, without the gospel, without Jesus Christ, what would be an appropriate response to God's divine nature and eternal power? Well, Paul gives the answer there in verse 21. To honour God as God and to give him thanks. But as Paul says there, that is precisely what does not happen. People don't honour God as God and they don't give him thanks. Why? It's because without the creative work of God in you, inside you, by His Spirit, we never want to honour God as God and give thanks to Him. Our hearts and minds are resistant to God. We don't want to submit to Him. It's what the Bible calls sin, and it's infected every single one of us. So even though God has spoken plainly through what He's made, so that no one has any excuse, what He's revealed of Himself has been largely ignored. But then God's revelation of himself didn't actually stop with creation. As we've seen, he's spoken to us more fulsomely with greater clarity through his agents. Point two there on page 11. God speaks through his agents. Have a look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3 there on your page. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. So there's a history of God speaking to his people through his agents. It started way back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2, where God creates Adam and Eve, puts them in the garden with instructions he speaks to them he reveals to them in that moment who he is who they are how they're to live in response and you can trace that history of God speaking to his people through Noah through Abraham through Moses at Mount Sinai and the rest of the Old Testament prophets who followed after Moses but as Hebrews 1 just said there the history of God speaking to his people reaches a climax when he sends his son Jesus 
It's the climax because of who Jesus is. Jesus is the Lord. Or as Hebrews 1, 3 put it, he is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. So in Jesus, we have the climactic moment of God's revelation of himself. You can see how Jesus explained it himself there on your page from John chapter 12. He says, I have not spoken on my own, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment about what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I speak, therefore, I speak just as the Father has told me. When Jesus speaks about God the Father, he does so as God's ultimate spokesperson. So if we want to understand who God is, we need to pay close attention to what Jesus has to say. Because in his words and deeds, Jesus shows us the invisible God. That's how the Apostle John put it there in John 1.18 on your page. Now, it's all well and good to say, well, okay, Jesus has spoken, yes, through the prophets, through his agents, and then he's climatically spoken in Jesus, but I don't see Jesus. We look around, where is he? We, we don't have access to him, do we? We can't see him. We can't hear his words. How do we get access to that ultimate revelation of God in the person of Jesus? Well, the answer is over the page on page 12. God speaks through the authoritative apostolic testimony. You can see there Jesus' promise and command to his chosen eyewitnesses, the apostles from Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I've tried to represent the situation in that diagram on page 12. Um, starting at the left, Jesus Christ as the Lord is the one who climactically revealed what God the Father is like. The apostles, which are the next group along to the right, they had free access to Jesus. That's why there's a two-way arrow. They could talk with Jesus and ask him questions and get all the information from him. They were Jesus' chosen eyewitnesses. But those apostles are long dead, right? What's more, they were meant to be Jesus' witnesses to the ends of the earth. They certainly never made it to Australia, let alone to Australia in 2013. How can we access that authoritative apostolic testimony about what Jesus said and did? Well, the answer is through the New Testament scriptures. Here in this collection of writings is the record of that apostolic eyewitness testimony. That great gospel announcement of God, announced by Jesus, entrusted to the apostles, has now been inscribed in the scriptures for all of us. So the apostles' testimony does live on through the written record of their authoritative testimony. And then you can see all the way in the diagram on the far right-hand side, there's the EU of 2013, looking mighty fine. When we announce, and so when we announce to the campus, Jesus is Lord on our T-shirts, whether we do it on our T-shirts or whether we do it in conversation with friends, we're not inventing a new message, are we? We're echoing the gospel announced by Jesus entrusted to the apostles and inscribed for all in the scriptures. We get our gospel from the scriptures, not from focus groups, not from whatever's currently trending. And as we make the gospel announcement that Jesus is Lord, God still speaks through that message to the campus today. God makes his announcement about who he is through us. 
Well, that brings us toward, to the end of this first talk, the first now exploration to understand who God is and what he's doing. And you can see my conclusion there on page 12. God has not stayed silent. Uh, we started with questions, questions common to our experience. Who is God? What's he like? What's he doing? The good news in the face of our common questions is that God has not stayed silent. He has revealed himself in the face of Jesus who is Lord. And that's how the Apostle Paul put it there in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 6. For it is God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's in the face of Jesus that we come face to face with God himself. In Jesus, God shows us who he is, what he's like, what he's doing. Jesus is Lord. The gospel is the answer to our questions about God. And part of the way we then worship this God is by sharing in his proclamation of this gospel, by announcing to the campus and to the world that Jesus is Lord. And that's what the EU has been doing at Sydney Uni for 83 years. And the words of the EU's first object, we present students with the Christian gospel. What's that gospel? Jesus is Lord. And we seek to lead them to a personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. EU is a gospel union. That's what the word evangelical means, actually. It means of the gospel. We are thoroughly and prayerfully and passionately committed to proclaiming God's gospel that Jesus is Lord, and we're going to do it patiently, we're going to do it diligently, creatively and gently and boldly as he enables us to do it. And by God's grace, he has brought many people to faith in Jesus through the EU's proclamation over the years. Sometimes just through the patient sharing of the gospel friend to friend, sometimes through large evangelistic missions. Now I mention this because Next week, next Monday, we start our Your God mission on campus where, once again, we'll be proclaiming God's gospel to our friends and to the campus at large, saying Jesus is Lord. It really is a privilege, right, to be able to join together in proclaiming God's good news gospel announcement that Jesus is Lord to the campus. And I want to encourage you, to grab hold of the opportunity during mission to proclaim Jesus is Lord. Wear the blue mission hoodies. Invite your friends. Pray for them. Ask them what they think. Hand out flyers. Be bold and gentle and prayerful and creative and proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord. And as some encouragement for you, and since it ties in with the theme of God speaking, Um, Let me just share with you a story, a story of an EU mission at Sydney Uni way back in 1951. Uh, You can read about it in the EU history book, which is a great read and available up on the bookstore. Now, let me just tell you about this mission. This, This mission that the EU has put together in 1951, it went for nine days in June 1951. The centrepiece of their mission was six lunchtime talks given by Howard Guinness, who'd been instrumental in establishing the EU way back in 1930, and after whom today we name our Howard Guinness project, the Howies like Kat and Josh. But supporting these six lunchtime talks, over the two weeks, get this, they ran, ready, 
130 extra evangelistic events. 130 evangelistic events in two weeks. They ran separate events for every year group in every faculty. And the colleges as well. I knew knew you'd like that. Now, to preach the gospel at all of those events in just two weeks, they called in over 30 other missioners, as they called them. And last year, I was at a dedication of a new hall down at St. Barnabas Broadway uh, in Howard Guinness's honour. And I was chatting there with a guy, Bill Anderson, who's an old man now, but as a young man, he had been one of the assistant missioners at that 1951 EU mission. And he was telling me how every morning of the mission, how Guinness would assemble all the missioners and they'd meet for prayer to commit to God their proclamation that Jesus was Lord on the campus that day. Now, the mission wasn't run by Howard or the missioners. They were just the invited speakers. The whole thing was run by EU students, students who were prepared to think big, be bold, be creative, be prayerful and invest heavily to see God's gospel that Jesus is Lord proclaimed to the university. And you know what the theme of the mission was? Well, in the days leading up to the mission, the EU plastered the notice boards around the campus. Nothing's changed in our strategy, by the way. Plastered notice boards around the campus with posters saying things like this. Bertrand Russell has spoken. H.G. Wells has spoken. That would mean nothing these days, but 1951. H.G. Wells has spoken. Albert Einstein has spoken. And this created a stir, right? People wanted to know who was putting up these posters. And then the EU launched its mission with the announcement, God has spoken. That's what we do, see? We proclaim God's gospel. He has spoken. He's revealed himself in the face of Jesus Christ the Lord. And the whole mission caused a massive debate on the campus. There were letters in Onisoir that raged for months with lecturers chiming in and students. Howard Guinness wrote in himself. And most wonderfully, 100 students became Christians during the mission and then more during the rest of the term that followed. How great is that? And now we're about to do it all over again. You know what was their aim back in 1951? Uh, They wrote this in a letter that they sent out to graduates and friends asking for prayer. Not not an email, not a Facebook status, like a a typed out on a typewriter letter that they put in envelopes and sent in the mail to a whole bunch of people they hoped would pray. This is what they wrote. There are over 11,000 students in Sydney University. Our members are seeking to reach men and women of their own particular faculty with the gospel, but we feel that the time has come for an all-out attempt to present the claims of Christ to every student. To proclaim God's gospel, that Jesus is Lord, to every student on campus. That's a big vision, isn't it? And that's what our next three weeks in this Your God mission are about. Not for the heck of it, Not just because we can, but because we really do believe, don't we, that this message is vital. That knowing God in Jesus is a life or death matter. 
Whoever does not have Jesus, the Son, does not have eternal life. That's why we proclaim his gospel, that Jesus is Lord. Okay, so what I've learnt, my response, I'm going to just give you a moment here, and it would be great if you just took a pen out, just a moment to jot down something that you've learnt this morning, or some response maybe that you'd like to make. It's going to give you 30, 40 seconds to do that. Jot down a thought, a reflection, an action you'd like to take. And then I'm going to lead us in prayer using the words of the old hymn there on your page. So just take that moment to reflect and jot a few things down now. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess him, King of glory now. Tis the Father's pleasure we should call him Lord, who from the beginning was the mighty word. Name him, brothers and sisters, name him, with love strong as death, but with awe and wonder and with bated breath. He is God the Saviour, he is Christ the Lord, ever to be worshipped, trusted and adored. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not stayed silent, but that you have revealed yourself in the face of Jesus Christ. We pray that this week you might help us to see Jesus more clearly, that we may know you more truly, and that in the power of your Spirit within us, we might proclaim him to all your world. We pray it in Jesus' great name, our Lord and King. Amen.